Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. As humans, talking openly to each other is one of the key tools we have to gain knowledge, to seek the truth, to foster curiosity, to exchange and explore ideas, to see nuance, to ask big questions, to defend individual liberty, to resist ideology and tribalism, to heal and develop, to glean insight, to learn from history, to change our minds. And in that spirit, I believe that each guest has important information and stories to share. This show is also a deeply personal project for me to learn, to grow, to reduce my own ignorance, to try to make me a better human being and a better citizen. And it's something that I want to share. Ben Westhoff is an investigative journalist and author. In 2019, he published Fentanyl Inc., the definitive story of the fentanyl drug trade and its effects on American culture. During our conversation, Ben talks about his reasons for writing the book, where fentanyl is made and how it enters America, the pervasiveness and dangers of fentanyl to society, and what might be done to add a measure of safety to people at risk from its toxicity. I admire Ben's courage in traveling to China and putting himself at risk to learn truths about the fentanyl drug trade. Fentanyl is amazingly dangerous and is at least 50 times more potent than morphine. It kills tens of thousands of unwitting Americans each year who often buy street drugs they believe to be pure cocaine, MDMA, or opioid pills. This list includes Prince and Tom Petty. Whatever is to be done to improve the situation, it has to start with telling the truth. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ben Westhoff. All right, Ben. Well, um, first of all, as I alluded to before we, we started recording, I've been wanting to, to talk to you for, for quite some time. And I just want to start by thanking you again for the time. Uh, I know you have a busy schedule and um, I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to me about uh, your life, your work, your book. Um, it's great to have you on the show. Nice to meet you, Dan. Thanks for having me. You got it. I would love to start with a very basic question, which I'm sure you have gotten dozens of times before. And I know that the, the conversation focus today is going to be on the subject of fentanyl uh, and its effects on, on the U.S. and U.S. life. Um, to start, I, I wanted to ask you just a basic question, which is what is this substance? What is fentanyl? Where does it come from? Any basic overview you could give of, of that would be, I think, useful as a kicking off point. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, which is 50 times stronger than heroin and was originally created as a medical drug in the 1950s. And it still is widely used in hospitals and for people with cancer and long-term conditions. But it jumped into the recreational realm. And a few years ago, the production techniques started getting a lot more sophisticated. And so it began to be made very cheaply in China on the illicit market. And that sort of flooded the U.S. through the Mexican cartels. And it's it's so cheap to make and it's so potent that it's starting to be cut into every, you know, recreational powder that's out there or pressed pills. So you can find it in Coke, meth, um, you know, black market Xanax pills, OxyContin, um, you know, it's in, in addition to heroin, where it's traditionally been found the most. And so people only only two grains of rice worth will kill you. And so people who 
don't even realize they're taking any fil- any fentanyl or overdose and dying from it. Yeah. I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording as well, that I, like I think many Americans uh, my age, have a direct connection um, to the effect that that substance is having on our on our culture with a, a family friend who who died um, a couple years ago in my case. I'm curious for you how you got interested in this in the first place. Was it something personal as well, or were you just curious about the substance? Yeah, I did have a friend who died uh, in St. Louis from a fentanyl overdose. He had been drinking as well, and he kind of suffocated in his pillow. And these these were the patches um, that he had procured on the black market. And um, his name was Michael Schaefer-Meyer. He was a good friend of mine. And that was 2010, actually. Wow. Nobody really knew much about it then. And um, I got more into it when I was um, I was thinking of writing a book about ecstasy. But then I realized there was almost no ecstasy out there on the market. And uh, all of it, what was being sold as ecstasy or molly was actually these new adulterated drugs. And they, they were adulterated with chemicals that no one had ever heard of. And so I kind of went down the rabbit hole and learned about this class of new chemicals called novel psychoactive substances or NPS and fentanyl is the most dangerous of those and they're all made in China and sold on the dark web and as well as on the clear web and so my book is kind of about um, my attempts to get to the bottom of what started this national nightmare of drug overdose deaths and what we might do about it. And where I think one of the most interesting uh, facts or aspects to my learning from you and in researching you about what you learned is the role of China in um, the distribution of fentanyl in American society. And I, I would love for you to speak to, you know, an audience of people that hypothetically are, are, quite uninformed about um, the role of that nation in getting fentanyl in, you know, so maybe specifically related to the percentage of the fentanyl in the world that's made in China, how it gets here, and your general thoughts on um, the intention behind China, as I understand it, uh, kind of getting the fentanyl into the U.S. via Mexico as potentially an intentional act to do damage on the American populace. Well, the majority of the illicit fentanyl is made in China. There's also, you know, lots of legitimate fentanyl, fentanyl that's made for hospitals and as, as we discussed, and those are made um, in Europe primarily, some in the U.S., but the illicit fentanyl is almost all made in China. And um, it's made in China for the same reason that all, you know, like cheap products we so many cheap products that we buy are made in China because they do it very efficiently and for a low cost. And there's a huge chemical industry in China, the biggest chemical and pharmaceutical industries in the world. And the vast majority of it is legitimate. Um, but a certain percentage is dedicated to this, you know, you wouldn't say black market exactly because a lot of it is actually legal in China. And so until fairly recently, these different types of fentanyl called fentanyl analogs were totally legal for export in China. And so, so China banned fentanyl itself many years ago. 
but to get around that law, all the chemists had to do was tweak them up the molecule a slight bit. And they had these, these new fentanyl analogs and the most well-known of them is called carfentanil, which is actually like an elephant tranquilizer. And so in this gray market for these, these chemicals that were legal in China, but illegal in the U S they were popularized over the internet and um, they could be, and, and can be acquired in two different ways. One is directly over the internet, you know, by the individual consumer and people can have drugs sent right to their front door or else the traditional route is through the Mexican cartels. And so the cartels order vast amounts of these fentanyl analogs or the fentanyl ingredients even, and they're delivered on big cargo ships and they're packaged by the cartels and then sent up through the through the, the southern border and that's the same way that drugs like coke and meth and um heroin and even some marijuana is distributed in the u.s and so um as for you know china's intentions i mean this this started out very much as i think kind of capitalism gone crazy it was just the, the Chinese government, as I discovered from my book, was actually incentivizing the export of, of these fentanyl analogs because um, by, by giving what's called a value-added tax rebate. Yeah. And so companies that exported fentanyl would get this huge tax rebate. And the reason for that was China was trying to promote its chemical industry internationally. So it wasn't just fentanyl. It was this whole long list of chemicals that got these rebates um, because China wanted to go from, they're mainly producing generic drugs and they wanted to start producing these more expense, expensive name brand drugs. And they were trying to encourage that. And so that's, that's why fentanyl um, was incentivized in that way. But to, you know, now that the fentanyl crisis in the U S is very well known it's, um, you know, China has taken some steps to combat the problem. Like I said, they banned all, they did a blanket ban of all types of fentanyl a couple of years ago. And they've pledged, you know, they've worked with U.S. law enforcement to some extent, but they haven't really cracked down on fentanyl the way they have on drugs that are affecting the Chinese population. Hmm. For example, meth and heroin are big problems in China, and the government works really hard to try to stamp those out. But fentanyl is not a problem in China at all. Like most people have not, not even heard of it, even though it's made there. And so China hasn't devoted the same amount of resources. So, you know, I'm not really a conspiracy theorist. I don't think this is some sort of like covert form of warfare necessarily, but I do think that China just is not. Um, that if it was their own population, they would be working a lot harder to try to stop this problem. Yeah. And, and just to clarify the point you just made, it sounds like uh, fentanyl as an export is technically illegal for export from China, but the ingredients to make it are not necessarily so. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's the biggest, biggest problem right now. They're called precursors. Yeah. And the, the main business that these Chinese companies do with the Mexican cartels is now as they send over these boatloads of the precursor chemicals. And once the cartels get them, 
it's a very um, easy chemical process to to make finished fentanyl, and so that's that's really driving the epidemic right now. Yeah. Where are we currently in terms of the the death rates or the effects of fentanyl on U.S. kids, U.S. the U.S. population in general? Have have these any of these measures, the working with the Chinese government with the United States, helped to curb the overdose problem, or is it still as bad as it ever was? Uh, well, it's worse than it ever was. It's it's the problem that just keeps on getting worse, and um, COVID is definitely exacerbated the situation. Um, there were something like 93,000 drug overdose deaths in the U.S. Uh, last year, and that's a new record by far. And fentanyl is responsible for the majority of them. And um, so it's, it's the third wave of the opioid epidemic. So the first wave began in the 90s hmm. with the overprescription of Oxycontin and those type of pain relievers. And then the second wave was heroin, and uh, but now it's very hard to find any heroin on the streets that isn't cut with fentanyl, hmm. and that represents the third wave of the opioid epidemic. Yeah, and, and to that point, and this I think dovetails into the my own personal anecdote and ex- experience with a family friend that died from this, um, is the, and you obviously can speak to this in far more detail, but the... Uh, the unpredictability and the uncertainty of whether drugs that are being bought on the street are actually have this cut within it. I've heard you say in the past that, you know, uh, a couple famous people, for example, who died, uh, who OD'd, uh, Tom Petty being one, Prince being the other, actually, it it was certainly not an intentional act, that it was an act of, it was a surprise to them. It was the um, purchasing a substance that they didn't quite understand what was was within it that that really took them out yeah and that's very very common um there have been some famous rappers too uh, little peep uh juice world mac miller all these people didn't plan to take fentanyl fentanyl was just cut into the other drugs they were taking and uh you know what i tell young people in particular is that any powder or any pill that you get off the black market could have fentanyl. You know, it's if, if someone hands you a pill at the party and they're, you know, you're like, well, it's, it looks exactly like a Xanax bar. You know, it's, um, it's a pharmaceutical. It's got to be safe. You know, the, the fact is that there are people pressing these up on pill pressing machines, making them with fentanyl and they're pressed to look exactly like the real pill. And so you just can't trust anything on the black market uh, almost at all. Do you attribute that fact to the surge in the overdose deaths, at least in part, right? I think you said 93,000 people during 2020, I assume, died of an overdose. It seems to me that maybe it's a combination of not knowing what you're taking, the circumstances of COVID and the lifestyle due to COVID and increases, I would imagine, in mental health issues and depression. I would love for you to speak to that in general. Well, yeah, I mean, COVID, COVID, I think, exacerbated the problem. You know, people like were out of work and struggling financially and depression and these things tend towards drug use. But, you know, it was already on the rise even well before COVID. And that has to do with uh, fentanyl just 
increasingly saturating the market. So at first it was mainly in heroin, hmm. but not a lot of people use heroin. Do you know what I mean? Cocaine and meth are much more popular drugs. And so it's, it's really gotten in those supplies, but now it's starting to get into the pill supply and, and pills are by far the most abused drug. And so, you know, there's, there's tons of people who would never shoot up heroin, but they'll, they'll pop a pill. And, and since it's gotten into that supply, it's really uh, ratcheted up the death toll. And unfortunately, that seems like it's only going to get worse because there are still a lot of parts of the country, uh, like West Virginia, for example, I think maybe the Appalachia area, um, people have been abusing pills for a long time. And it's only now starting to get into the pill supply and it's only probably going to get worse. Hmm. What do we know, if anything, about the the percentage of these street drugs, right? The the cocaines, the the pills, the heroin that have fentanyl within it. Is it, uh, you know, a rough range of percentages of if you're, you know, taking one of those substances that we know, generally speaking, what the probability is that it's it might be laced with fentanyl? I don't have good numbers about that, but I mean, I think just from a user perspective, just assume that it does have it. And uh, there's really great testing kits out hmm. there. I always recommend a company company called the Bunk Police, hmm. and they they have fentanyl testing strips. Um, you can get them a lot of places off the internet and elsewhere, and they're really cheap and easy. It's just you just dip them into a solution of the drugs, and it will tell you like a pregnancy test immediately if the it has fentanyl in it or not. Hmm. And I, I guess this transitions into a, another question, which is what are the recommendations you give to people that I, I don't know that we're ever going to live in a culture where people aren't going to want to do drugs or try, try different um, experimentations when uh, they're out and it, it becomes available. Obviously, I would imagine that testing kit is something that you would recommend um, if you are going to try to try substances. But what else what else do you say to, to people to, you know, as suggestions to try to help them or to mitigate some of the risk? Well, first of all, if you get if you're getting your pills directly from a pharmacy or from your doctor or whatever, those are going to be OK. I'm, I'm speaking specifically about anything obtained on the black market. Um, Secondly, you know, if you've got uh, marijuana flower, you know, and you bought it at a dispensary, or even if you if you can smell the buds, if they look like real buds, smell like real buds, you're you're going to be fine. There's there's been almost no instances of fentanyl adulterating, you know, marijuana flower because there's not really a financial incentive to do it. Hmm. And plus, you 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 would be able to tell, you know, it wouldn't look right. Um, when it comes to um, you, drug use, yeah, people are always going to use drugs. There's no stopping them. I would just urge people to 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 think ahead. You know what I mean? Like to plan your drug use. You know, like if you're if you plan your drug use, you'll be able to use a testing kit to find out if what you have is the real thing. Um, there, there's you know, like I said, increasingly sophisticated kits that can test to see if you're Ecstasy has real MDMA, your Molly, uh, your LSD is real, you know, everything. And um, the problem is, is when people are just um, out at parties 
and someone else is doing something and they just they just jump in i mean if you're you know if you see someone like doing rails um and they've been doing them all night and they're still standing maybe it's it's maybe you probably will be all right but drugs can also affect people differently and so yeah it's 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 those it's those type of situations that are really taking people by surprise and killing young people especially yeah do we know if the fentanyl laced drugs are more common in certain regions of the country you know the ones that are closer to the mexican border for example or is it widely no, distributed it, everywhere it, it really started in the northeast and now it's gets like swept across the country it's really strong in the west coast now but yeah i mean it's it's getting everywhere it's it's only in the u.s and canada right now for the most part but um i think it's really only a matter of time before europe and other parts of the world are really saturated with it too it's just like you know the taliban um just like banned opium poppy planting i think when they came back i i don't know if i have those details right exactly but there's been a disruption in um the heroin from afghanistan so it seems very likely to me that fentanyl is going to uh the the incentive the market incentive for it is just too strong to yeah. come into these other countries as well you know in my in my experience this this is again anecdotal of living in this in this country i have lived through the waves you were mentioning of the the drug issues that we've experienced and i remember the second wave i think you articulated where there was a, a serious heroin problem and i had a, people i knew who i went to high school with in northwestern pennsylvania who who died who would be found in bathroom stalls um overdosing on on heroin i get the sense just personally that fentanyl is less widely known about and understood in the culture at large. And I, I would, get, would be interested in getting your thoughts as to whether this is getting the attention and whether the, uh, the facts related to fentanyl are yet widespread enough in the culture to really understand what's going on. No, I don't think it is widely known. I think the, the COVID epidemic really um, sucked up a lot of the media oxygen um, and I think people also just have opioid fatigue, you know, yeah. like we've been hearing about the opioid crisis for a couple decades or more now. And so people, when they hear like there's this new part of it, it's like they've been hearing about it for so long, they don't even want to pay attention. And part of it is that um, people, you know, there's still a lot of stigma and people think of themselves like, people who use opioids, they're not like I am, you know, these are, these are drug users. This is a different kind of person. Yeah. But, um, I think increasingly though, that's starting to change because so like you were mentioning so many people know someone who's really been touched by this epidemic that, um, it's getting less like a division between them and us. Yeah. I have heard you say in prior interviews that, and I don't know if this is still the case, but at one point a couple of years ago, I think you said that something like 90% of the world's fentanyl was coming out of China, or at least the ingredients to make fentanyl mm -hmm. were coming out of China. But the, you also alluded to the fact that, I think this was in, in the spirit of the larger point, that drugs sort of always find a way um, mm -hmm. because the demand is there and that if we were 
successful in blocking China from getting the ingredients to make fentanyl into the U.S. that your your thought was that India potentially would take over as a potential leader there. Um, I heard about yeah, this. Yeah, India in an already is. Yeah, India is already making increasing amounts of fentanyl, and um, their laws are even less prohibitive. You know, the China China has worked with the U.S. government to some extent, but India really hasn't. So it's possible that if even if we did shut down China in this regard, the problem would get even worse. In terms of the percentages, is that is it still roughly that 90% or so of the world's fentanyl comes out of China? Or is Maybe, it, has yeah, that dropped? It's, it's, it's very, very hard to know, but that's that seems approximately accurate. It's it's the vast majority. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have heard you speak as well in terms of the, the story of you writing the book and the investigations that you did going over to China and investigating the labs. Um posing as a drug dealer to go over there to to get some of your research. For somebody who's listening to this who is interested in journalism and the, the art and the craft of the work that you do, uh, I would love for you to kind of just tell the story of how you began to do your own, what sounds like kind of individual research that led to you going over there and uh, meeting what sound like family men drug dealers who eventually trusted you enough to, to let you into some of their facilities. How does that work? What, what begins the outreach for you to be able to connect with these people to begin to do firsthand research like that? Well, I started off just Googling uh, buy fentanyl in China and there all these sales people had their email addresses and phone numbers, Skype, contact information right there on the internet. And so I made a fake, some fake contact information and I reached out to them and we stuck up a rapport. And I talked to some of these fentanyl salespeople for weeks and weeks and months. And um, finally I asked some if, if they would show me the lab, if I came there. And so I went over there, you know, I, I didn't get a journalist visa. I just got used a regular tourist visa um, and so I was like, partly afraid that these drug dealers, these drug manufacturers would find out who I was, but I was partly afraid the government would, uh, realize I was doing journalism without the proper visa. And, um, but, you know, um, I, I, I went to Wuhan and this is before coronavirus and Shanghai and in Wuhan, I visited this company that makes the more fentanyl precursors than any other company. They're called Yuan Chung. And I wrote about this experience uh, for the Atlantic. Um, but basically, yeah, they, they sell it. They say they sell over 10,000 chemicals, but really they focus on these fentanyl ingredients and steroids. And I went in there and I pretended that I was interested in buying this stuff and they gave me a tour of the whole company, these like young perky sales people um, showed me, you know, what their whole were. And I was shocked that it was like, basically it looked like a Western company. These are people, recent college graduates at uh, cubicles with like desktop computers. And it all looked, it was almost like the Google campus in a way, you know, kind of a lower rent version of that. And, um, and then in Shanghai, 
I visited an actual lab, like a Breaking Bad style lab where this, um, this chemist owned a small company with maybe like five employees and they were making all sorts of fentanyl analogs and also synthetic cannabinoids like K2 and Spice. And I was really shocked by the scope of the lab, the quantity of the chemicals they make, they were making considering just a tiny little bit is enough to make you overdose and die. And they had, you know, like piles and piles of these chemicals on these lab tables and in little one kilo bags, you know, like barrels and barrels of them. And um, it was very hair, you know, hair raising, um, is that the term? Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, it was very scary because I got in the car with this lab owner and his, uh, his driver, who was maybe his personal security also, and went out to the distant suburbs of Shanghai to see the lab and um, kind of telling all these lies about where I was from and what, what my purpose was. And um, we got to the, the lab. It was in this kind of suburban office park that really looked like completely innocuous from the outside. And, um, and I had my voice recorder going in my jacket uh, pocket. And so I just sort of described what I saw out loud to, to use for my reporting later. And uh, I, I got out of there, you know, by the skin of my teeth. What makes you risk your own physical safety like that? I mean, I, is it the personal experience and wanting to get to the bottom of what had happened to somebody you knew? Is it just sort of an ethos of somebody who, who tries to take journalism seriously? Like what mentality, you know, you're married, you have a nice life in the U.S. What drove you to want to do something like that where you're actually putting yourself in some pretty serious harm's way? Well, probably just being a moron, <laughs> you know, not, um, not thinking clearly, but I mean, I don't know. I, I do take journalism very seriously. And the fact that this is an epidemic that is, uh, touching so many people and it had never been reported on, you know, I, I kept reading about all of this industry playing, taking place in China, but no one had ever went to one of these labs. And so, I felt like I could really uh, learn a lot and share information and help like shed light on this process. And, um, you know, the other thing that made me feel a little safer was that it, it wasn't like the Mexican cartels where they, they're beheading people and they have AK-47s, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, these Chinese chemists are like trying to make money yeah. really and they, and they don't want to, make a stink they just sort of want to like operate in peace and so i um i was betting that doing something to me might be bad for their business yeah i know you've done a lot of interviews related to this book since its publication and i i would love to i guess ask a, a kind of open-ended question to you which is w what are the questions or a question that you don't get asked enough that you think you should be asked to really get it a core truth or a core insight that you glean from your research on the, on the book. And you don't even have to formulate the question, but just a subject matter that, you know, really speaks to you that is, um, you think profound and, and important that you uncovered when you were doing your research. 
Well, yeah, I mean, um, the journalism aspect, like I said, is really important to me. And, you know, I think like journalism isn't as hard as people think it is. It's <laughs> basically you're just putting in the time and putting in the effort to try to to uncover stuff that hasn't been reported on before. And, you know, the vast majority of things have never been reported. Yeah. You know, it's it's um, it's not very difficult to um, just by talking to people. You know, I think a lot of people who want to be reporters spend all their days on the Internet, you know, but like the stuff by virtue of being on the Internet, it usually has been reported. And so if you're, you know, making phone calls, meeting up with people, seeing new things, um, that's sort of the way to to do this. And I think sort of trying to go against the conventional wisdom is also important too. You know, right now I'm looking into these different opioid treatments and it seems to me that one of them in particular called naltrexone has been sort of unfairly maligned. It's, it's an opioid blocker. And currently in vogue it are these um, called opioid agonists that, um, that are part of uh, medication assisted treatment. And those are methadone, in buprenorphine and these are these are opioids themselves and they help people taper off uh bad opioids like fentanyl and heroin and these have you know people have had like a lot of people have had success with them but but this blocker called naltrexone i think there's a, a ton of potential for that because w- once you take once you take it um you know, you could take as much heroin or fentanyl as you wanted, and it wouldn't make you high. You wouldn't overdose. It's kind of this miracle drug that um, I don't think is being utilized enough. And so I think that's another big part of journalism is sort of listening to your own instincts. And, you know, when you think something doesn't sound right, kind of pushing a little further and trying to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. I know you've probably thought quite deeply about these subjects just from a cultural level. Like, where do you think we as Americans go from here or should go from here as a, as a people and as a, from a policy perspective to, this is clearly a plague on our country. And I mean, you're talking about 90,000 people last year who, who died from this. Um, that's a big number. What, what in your estimation are, are some steps that might be useful to try to begin to improve the situation? I am a proponent of harm reduction, which is the idea, like we talked about, that people are always going to use drugs and we just need to find a way to make it safer, to educate people better, to, to help them recover. I'm not a proponent of locking people up. For, for nonviolent drug offenses. Um, and, you know, it seems like the country is moving in that direction. Um, but to, I get asked a lot about legalization and the things like that. And I'm, I'm certainly uh, in favor of decriminalizing most drugs, if, you know, if not all of them. But to me, um, legalization implies that they're, they're available more easily, you know, like with the legalization of marijuana, for example, we're seeing these storefronts pop up uh, in these states where it's legal. And sometimes it's like leading to higher rates of consumption. And hmm. there's this sort of mentality that marijuana is a health food, you know, but, but really it's, 
you know, it's, it's not good for you either. And so while I, it's, I think it's better, it's a safer drug than alcohol, Hmm. um, you know, and, but then there, there are drugs like psychedelics. And I think people can really benefit from them, especially in a medical realm and, and, you know, even people who are using them recreationally. And so that's not necessarily, those shouldn't necessarily be regulated the same way that something like heroin should be um and then there are even different classes of psychedelics like dmt is you know it's it's that's like super potent and and that shouldn't necessarily be uh classified the same way as a magic mushrooms for example so there's it's really a lot to sort out and um i have spent a lot of time thinking about this but my thinking on a lot of these issues is still evolving as well is there a city, a state, a country that in your mind, given the complexity of all this, that is handling how to deal with these substances in a way that you find to be most rational or the best option that you're familiar with? A lot of people point to Spain and Portugal, and I agree they de- decriminalized drugs and Portugal in particular had a really big heroin problem and um that has been reduced uh spain has a lot of great harm reduction programs like i talk about in the book and um they don't have fentanyl you know and that and that might be owing to other factors but the people on the ground who i talk to in spain say that they since the traditional drugs are legal most people prefer the traditional drugs so heroin you know marijuana um you know, psychedelic, like traditional psychedelics, like LSD, rather than all these kind of like newfangled, nefarious psychedelics and and NPS, these all these hundreds and hundreds of new drugs that are basically copies, knockoffs of the original drugs, but they're much more potent. So, you know, fake LSD, fake marijuana, fake heroin, you know, um, all of these drugs are much worse. And and Spain and Portugal don't have these a big problem with these drugs. And so it seems to me that they are perhaps doing something right. But then again, you know, there's all these kind of like socioeconomic political factors that play in that are, make it very hard to compare one country to another. Yeah. And I know the book has been out now for a few years and I, I would be curious to know if you have changed your mind on anything or at least, uh, you know, um, evolved in any, any way in terms of what your, you know, conclu- general conclusions were or um, beliefs, primary beliefs that really carried the weight of the book that have, have been altered in the years since its publication. Yeah. Well, some of these things I'm talking about right now are, are you, you know, the book came out in September, 2019 and, um, some of the things that I've been mentioning now are probably not exactly what I said in the book. Um, I think the the question of legalization is is kind of going to be the biggest question of our time in the U.S. Um, and but also um, how we're treating people with opioid use disorder. You know, people who are addicted to opioids. That's to me kind of setting up. as as this big battleground because there's kind of this abstinence movement versus this like um, using lower level opioids to taper off. 
and they each each proponent of each side really has strong arguments um and and the same in the world of alcoholism there's this kind of the 12-step mentality um is kind of in vogue for a lot of you know a lot of places and that's the abstinence model but this drug i was talking about naltrexone can actually treat alcoholism too and so um it, it remains to be seen where we're gonna where we're gonna settle and but it could have really big ramifications yeah I know our time is coming to a close relatively quickly here, and I, I want to just kind of nail down a few a few more of the the facts and, and bits of information that you detail in the book. Um, one of the aspects that I would be curious to get you to speak about are related to the legal ways in which fentanyl is actually used in a medical context, right? Um, it has some purpose in a legal setting. I think I've heard you say in the past that uh, women who are going into childbirth, that that's a context in which it, it, it is being used medically. Another is with open for heart surgery. Epidural. Yeah, for epidurals. Yeah. So, uh, speak to that a little bit, that like uh, the, the legal methods in which fentanyl is being used that it ha make it have a, a proper um, place in our culture in a, in a medical context. Yeah, I don't think it's a particularly controversial drug in the medical field. Um, it was originally developed as kind of a replacement for morphine in that it uh, came on faster and caused less nausea. And so it, it kind of enabled um, open heart surgery to be done, you know, more effectively. And, um, and today for a lot of kind of like end of life patients, um, there and people with cancer um there it's a very effective drug for sort of like chronic pain um it's kind of a the next level up from something like oxycontin and um you know when men go for colonoscopies they're given fentanyl often and it sort of puts them out so you know, it's measured the dosage is measured by, by an anesthesiologist someone who's trained to do it and it certainly has, there have been a lot of reports of anesthesiologists themselves and nurses and doctors getting hooked and hmm. kind of um, stealing it from the hospital and replacing it with water in some cases. But for the most part, um, it's it's measured properly and it's, and it's used for its intended use. It's not um, really a take-home drug for, for people you know, otherwise healthy people, the way that the Oxycontin pills were. Um, so, um, so, and, and, and there have been reports of fentanyl being misappropriated from hospitals and sold in black markets, but that's not really the main source of fentanyl you find on the street either. So it's almost like it's two separate, like shadow industries of fentanyl the illicit one and the the legal one and they they like overlap very little yeah the experience of the person who is taking it right i mean i've, I've heard you you speak to this as well in the past that as is true with many drugs it's often very enjoyable uh you know uh, inducing some form of euphoria um i would love to get your your just general take on what uh, what that experience tends to be like for people who are on these substances. 
I have never taken fentanyl, but, um, you know, I've taken other opioids and yeah, it's uh, people describe it as kind of like floating on a cloud and, um, it's just sort of takes away all your concerns at the moment. And it's, it's a, it's narcotic, you know, it puts you into a sort of a, a stupor if you, if you take too much and it gives people the nod and makes them kind of go drift in and out of sleep. Um, you know, I've heard fentanyl described as kind of uh, less soulful than heroin, you know, yeah. heroin, it's uh, it lasts longer. Um, fentanyl though, wears off more quickly and you need to up, you know, re up so often. And that's another problem with it is that people find themselves going into withdrawal even more quickly. So it's, um, you know, it's like any opioid. It's, it's the great, it can cause the greatest pleasure humans can know practically. And it can also cause the greatest suffering. Yeah. There are two final things I want to go over before we wrap this up. Um, one is a point we've already touched on, but I want to underline it again for, for people who I think we both agree may not know that this is even a thing in the U.S. Uh, and that is related to the um, the inability without a testing kit to really know whether a drug you might be taking actually contains fentanyl in it. And, and by ingesting that substance, you're really risking your life. Um, what are the substances again, just to clarify this one more time that, you know, kids, people in our culture really should be looking out for as being at potential risk for having fentanyl in it. Just any pill or any powder that you buy in the black market. So, you know, that just means any drug dealer, any your friend at a party, anything, you know, if they, fentanyl tends to be like a, a like a white powder and so it can be very easily mixed into cocaine or meth or heroin and it can be very easily pressed up into pills so um yeah it's very very common and given that fact it sounds like it, is it correct to assume that people who are doing, you know, mushrooms, you already talked about um, uh, marijuana earlier, that those substances are, are much less likely to be laced with fentanyl, given the way that fentanyl seems to be uh, wedded into these other substances? Well, yeah, I haven't heard about cases where people had fentanyl on their magic mushrooms. I mean, you, you think about the incentive structure for a drug dealer, right? So, to cut to cut cocaine to to make it step on to step to step on it to increase the volume, you know that makes sense, right? For these other drugs, it makes sense. But like sprinkling fentanyl on on some magic mushrooms, I mean that's not going to in, make the drug. It's you know that's not going to make it more profitable. Yeah. For for a drug dealer, and um, so I, I I don't see that really happening as much. And again, if you, you, if you see the mushrooms, if they look like mushrooms, if they, you know, you're going to be able to tell if something is something is off with, with something like magic mushrooms, um, with these organic plant matter drugs, uh, I guess they don't have to be organic, but with these drugs that are plants, when it comes to these other pills and powders, though, it would be very, it's much more difficult to tell if they've been adulterated. Yeah. Um, the last qu question I want to ask you is related to 
our culture and our society. And that's really what this show is about is it's, um, focuses on culture and society. And I'm wondering for you, given your research in this book, given your curiosity about the culture in general, what's next? What, what are you interested in? What do you think people are not talking about that they really should be? Well, um, well, yeah, I mean, my I, my next book, it's coming out in May, and it's about the murder of my mentee in the Big Brothers Big Sisters program. His name was Jorel Cleveland, and he was 19. We had been together for 11 years. I was wow. his you know, big brother in the program, and he was killed in um, near his home in Ferguson, Missouri, which is outside of St. Louis, where I live. And so that case was unsolved for a number of years. But for this book, I, you know, figured out uh, who killed him. And it was this big sort of investigation. And it's also about uh, St. Louis and sort of this, um, the high, the, the rising rates of, um, you know, the murder rates are rising around the country. There's sort of this um, chronic poverty in not just cities, but now in suburbs like Ferguson and sort of um, dovetailing with uh, the Michael Brown protests and the, the George Floyd protests around the country and how this all um, affected Jarrell's world where he grew up. So that's coming out in May. It's called Little Brother. <laughs> yeah. I was in the Big Brother Big Sister program too in uh, in oh, San were? Francisco. Yeah, for uh, for a few years. And um, man, I'm sorry to hear about that. Well, thank you. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a great program, and I I highly recommend it. it was, was you know, it's it's really sad what you know that Jarrell was killed, but the experience of of being with him all those years really opened my eyes, and I learned so much, and I'm so glad to have known him. Yeah. Um, well, Ben, before we sign off, I just want to thank you on behalf of a lot of people that know your work and are familiar with your writing. Um, I didn't know anything about fentanyl really until I was exposed to what you do. Um, I really admire the, you know, the interest and the guts and the time that it took to, to put this book together and to share it with people. Um, so thank you for the time today. And, and also thank you for the effort that it took to create information that I think is really useful and important for people in the U S and around the world really to know about. Um, it, it was really great to meet you and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Great. Well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate, uh, your having me and, uh, all the good questions. Yeah. Thanks, man. Good luck with everything. All right. Take care. You too. All right. Take care, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of keep talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show. 